Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Joshua Matson as part of our Young Scholar series to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Joshua Matson is a Ph.D. student in Religions of Western Antiquity at Florida State University and a teacher at the Tallahassee Institute of Religion. Josh received a Bachelor's in Ancient Near Eastern Studies from BYU and a Master's in Biblical Studies from Trinity Western University, where he assisted in authoring publications by the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute. Josh, you're kind of an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Tell us about some of the work you've done. So the Dead Sea Scrolls have always been something I've been fascinated in, uh, and I owe a lot to mentors here at BYU who provided that foundation for me. But with the Dead Sea Scrolls, I've done a lot of work in reconstructing texts, publishing ancient manuscripts that we've found, and really studying the scrolls from the perspective of how do they help us better understand Judaism in the Second Temple period. Let's start by reviewing some of the fun history of how the Dead Sea Scrolls were even found. Perfect. A number of stories are told about the ancient shepherds who were out tending their sheep and the fact of one of the younger brothers leading off and trying to find a sheep that had gone astray. And the story as it goes is that the sheep went into a cave and the younger brother, not wanting to go into the darkened cave, decided to scare the sheep out by throwing a rock into the cave as he threw the rock into the cave, instead of hearing it clank against the wall, he heard pots crash. Now, for this young boy, the thought wasn't of scrolls or of any ancient materials, but the hope that maybe something in there was uh, profitable, gold even, and ran back to find his brothers and tell them that he had stumbled across this great cave. Later, they end up going into the cave, which later becomes Cave One, or the first cave discovered of the Dead Sea Scrolls caves, and goes in and collects the pots and the scrolls that were in there, takes them back, much to the chagrin of the family, thinking that they had just found some wasted parchment. Uh, A lot of people ascribe that to be the story of how the scrolls were found. I thought they were Bedouins. They were, and shepherds, Bedouin shepherds. Yeah, it's just the back and forth of trying to decide what terms you want to use, but they lived out there, people of the land. Yeah. The desolate land. (laughs) Okay, I have seen Qumran, where the scrolls were found. I can't imagine a sheep living there. (laughs) It's pretty desolate. Yeah, well, and the big part of this is moving sheep from herding ground to herding ground. Okay. So coming back that, and why these shepherds are Bedouins, uh, living out off the land and moving their herds from place to place. Part of the desolation provides that they their sheep had free run on whatever was there. Uh, but it was. It's desolate right there next to the Dead Sea. Um, makes a, a very fitting comparison to what we would say in the Book of Mormon. One of my favorite aspects of, of that early text is it talks about Lehi taking his family into the wilderness. That wilderness, as a kid, I always thought was trees and forests that we get here in the Mountain West. But in reality, it's this wilderness of desert 
and nothingness. But the Dead Sea Scrolls community viewed themselves the same way. They viewed themselves as people in the wilderness and that it would be from the wilderness that they'd be able to find truth and come closer to their God. So this poor shepherd thought he had found treasure, turned out just to be clay pots and scrolls. They're actually one of the most valuable finds of the 20th century. Why are the scrolls so important? Well, it depends on who you ask. For some people, the scrolls are important because they're contemporaneous with Jesus, that these were texts that were produced and read and looked at at the time that Jesus existed. To others, these are the texts that prove that the Jewish people have a right to the land in the the Middle East there in Israel, uh, that this shows that the texts of the Old Testament were given anciently and that they were still efficacious in our day. For scholars like myself, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are important because they provide us with the oldest example of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, predating the earliest text that we had before the finding of the scrolls by almost a thousand years. You mentioned that their value is different to different people. I've seen the scrolls several times, once at the Dead Sea Scroll Museum and then once at a traveling exhibit. Not ever been totally impressed with those scraps of paper (laughs) with writing on it. I couldn't understand. You stated in a paper you wrote on the 70th anniversary of their discovery that the Dead Sea Scrolls' pervasiveness may only be matched by the enigma of their content. Or as I would say in simpler words, everybody knows about the scrolls, but few really know what's on them. What are some of the physical limitations of determining what's on the scrolls? Well, the big problem that we have is most of the scrolls are fragmentary. So instead of finding a library preserved with perfect manuscripts of every book that you could ever think of, we only have a few manuscripts that are actually complete while the rest of the manuscripts are found in fragmentary pieces. One analogy that most professors that speak of the Dead Sea Scrolls will use is think of taking a jigsaw puzzle and mixing up that jigsaw puzzle with a hundred other jigsaw puzzles and then taking away two-thirds to three-quarters of the pieces and then try and put those puzzles back together. So you've got hundreds of puzzles, you've got only a couple hundred or a couple thousand pieces, and trying to reconstruct what all of those other images looked like. And so with the scrolls, we primarily are faced with pieces to a bigger picture. And so scholars like myself attempt to take those pieces and reconstruct the entire puzzle. And sometimes our biases will come in and we start with a little bit of the puzzle and we fill it in with what we want to see. Uh, What we try to do is be as judicious as possible and as true to the text to fill in the picture that would actually have been there when the texts were written during the Second Temple period. There is one scroll that is pretty special, though. I think they found it in Cave 4. Am I right? Depends on what scroll you're talking about. I'm talking about the great Isaiah scroll. Yeah, so the Isaiah scroll found in Cave 1 was one of these primary documents. But the Great Isaiah Scroll is important because it gives us 99% of the text of Isaiah. 
Now, as Latter-day Saints, we oftentimes think about the fact that Isaiah is hard to get through in English (laughs) and in the Book of Mormon, but we know that from the Dead Sea Scrolls that Isaiah was important to the Qumran community or the community that produced the scrolls as well. Uh, We have numerous fragments from Isaiah, so we have a complete manuscript of Isaiah, but we also have other smaller manuscripts, smaller fragments of those manuscripts that uh, prove to us that Isaiah was one of the most important books among those people. Was there something extra special found in K4? Um, so in K4, what's most important about K4 for most people is that's where most of the scrolls were found. Okay. Um, and so K4 is the paramount cave. It's the one that everybody visits when they go to Qumran because it's the one that everybody hears about all of the fragments that were found there. Uh, And so the most numerous cave from which fragments were drawn was cave four. And uh, a number of texts from a variety of backgrounds comes from that cave. But most people, when they hear about Qumran or if you show them a picture, you're going to show them a picture of cave four. One of the great things about the Great Isaiah Scroll is that it's the oldest extant copy we have of it. So it's kind of cements in time how Isaiah was before it was copied and copied and copied and copied. Am I correct? Yeah, um, it gets us back closer to the original text. But we do have to keep in mind as well that the Great Isaiah Scroll is still four or five hundred years removed from... Isaiah himself. Uh, And so we still have the problem of copies of copies of copies of copies, Uh, but we're getting closer and closer back to the time when the text would have been a little more original. Now, one thing that we have found is while there are differences between the Isaiah scroll and the standard text of Isaiah that we see in the Masoretic text or what was the oldest complete collection of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament is that those differences are oftentimes minute. And it serves as a testimony to us that the Hebrew text or the Old Testament was preserved remarkably well by the ancient Jewish people. And that even though we have a thousand years between the Isaiah scroll and those early manuscripts, we still have a remarkable amount of consistency between the texts. I'm going to take a little detour here and talk a little bit about the reception history of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You shared a wonderful metaphor from a well-known movie to describe what different religious groups have seen in the scrolls. Would you share that with our listeners? Yeah. So one of the aspects of the scrolls that I think is important for all of us to keep in mind is that we sometimes want to see in the scrolls what we want to see rather than what's actually there. A comparison that I make is probably based on the fact that I read stories to my twin daughters. But uh, in a recent reading of Harry Potter uh, and the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, I found a remarkable comparison between the Mirror of Erised and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Like the book states, the individual who stands before the mirror gets to see what their deepest desires are, and that in reality, it actually isn't real. And sometimes we do the same thing with the scrolls. We find the scrolls and we find a piece or a fragment here, or we find a statement or an idea here, and we go, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I was looking for to prove such and such. 
uh, whether it be something like this proves that John was part of the Qumran community, as some people ascribe, or that Jesus may have been there at the Qumran community, or for Latter-day Saints, oftentimes it's, oh, look, the Qumran community had the exact same organization that we have, or that they were operating under a similar format of leadership as we are operating under. It is a little disingenuous to come forward and say that that's actually the case because we have to read those scrolls within the context in which they came, which is primarily from a Jewish group who is living the law of Moses to their utmost belief. Do we think it was the Essenes, or do we know it was the Essenes? This is the million-dollar question when it comes to Qumran research. Uh, There's a lot of things that we see from the Qumran community that mirrors the Essenes that are spoken of in the histories of Josephus. And so from the finding of the scrolls and the publication of the various manuscripts that we found there, oftentimes we say, oh, this lines up pretty well with what Josephus was saying about the Essene community. Most scholars nowadays are going to talk about communities in the plural. And so I think we're pretty safe in saying that the Qumran community was an Essene community, but was it the Essenes with a capital T? We probably shy away from that and say that we need to keep in mind that these communities had different ideas, different beliefs. Again, one of the hindrances that we sometimes have as Latter-day Saints looking at these texts is we want to say, oh, look, it's monolithic like the restored gospel. But ancient Judaism, especially Judaism in the Second Temple period, is very fragmented. We use the term sectarian a lot, uh, which deals with different sects or groups that are separated within Judaism. And most scholars today will say there are different Essene groups within Second Temple Judaism. So the Essenes at at Qumran were Essenes, but probably not the Essenes. Remind me again the dates for the Second Temple period. Yeah, so the Second Temple period consists of the time from the end of the exile uh, in the 530s BCE until the destruction of Herod's Temple in 70 AD. And so we're dealing with about a a 600-year period there. A lot of stuff can happen in that time period. Yeah, absolutely. So how did Mormon scholars react to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Was it peculiar to other Christian groups, or was it pretty similar? Well, as what will come as no surprise to most people who uh, will listen to this is Hugh Nibley was one of the first people to pick up on a lot of these scrolls. Early on in the Improvement Era, we see Hugh Nibley writing articles describing what the scrolls are, how they fit within the history of ancient Judaism in antiquity, and making statements about where these texts are going to take us. Um, And so Hugh Nibley gives us a a vision of those things. Uh, And then as we move forward, we find scrolls references even in general conference. Uh, And so we have Latter-day Saints who are using the scrolls to teach lessons. But Latter-day Saints aren't that much different than anybody else in trying to say, we're going to look at the scrolls and make the scrolls help us to be able to authenticate our beliefs and understanding. So that's basically what they were using them for as an authority or to authenticate. Yeah, they're oftentimes looking at them and and saying that. But again, it depends on the authority. We have references in the 1980s by Marky Peterson to the Dead Sea Scrolls to remind people that, hey, the scrolls don't provide a better image of antiquity than a text like the Book of Mormon. These were 
Old Testament groups living under Mosaic law who were functioning under the lesser law as we would look at it prior to Christ. And we shouldn't necessarily go back to them and say they have all the answers. But then you have individuals like Elder Oaks, who in a general conference talk, which actually led me to begin studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, say that the Dead Sea Scrolls are an example of a way in which the Lord will bring forth ancient scripture and give it to us to be able to have more scriptures promised in texts like the Book of Mormon. We oftentimes will use the scrolls as a means of orienting ourselves, whether for or against certain statements that are in them and the history that surrounds them. Is there more scripture in those scrolls? Because I thought it was a library of a whole bunch of things and then Old Testament scriptures. And you mentioned before the great Isaiah scroll is very similar to what we have in our modern day interpretations or the Masoretic texts, right? Yeah. So about a third of what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls is Old Testament biblical texts. But two-thirds of the text were not in our Old Testament. Uh, We have two real groupings there. We have what some people will call parabiblical texts, which are stories about biblical characters but are not found in the Bible. Uh, A lot of those texts provide insights into traditions that may have existed within the Jewish communities. But we also find legal texts, and that's probably a bigger portion of the texts that we find where we've got, this is how we're supposed to live our lives, this is how we're supposed to live the law of Moses. For me, I love the scrolls because they remind me of section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the revelation that Joseph Smith received from the Lord stating that he wasn't needing to translate the Apocrypha when he was doing his inspired translation of the Bible, because there were things in there that were true, but there were also things in there that were false. But if one would read them with the Spirit of the Lord, they would find the truths that were there. And so when I talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially with LDS groups, I always want to say that we can read the scrolls like we read the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, these other ancient Jewish traditions that we've had through the lens of the Spirit. And so for me, I find it exciting that we have texts at Qumran. We find texts of prophets like Enoch, which according to the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis in the book of Moses would seem to raise an eyebrow or two and say, yeah, look, those are scriptures that are being restored. If we read the scrolls with the Spirit, I have found that there are truths that we can mine from the scrolls. Uh, But again, always keeping in mind that other side of the warning, that there are things that are not true as well. I can't read the scrolls with the Spirit. (laughs) I can look at them, but I can't read them. Well, and that's one of the hard things for a lot of people who look at the scrolls. Because of their fragmentary nature, even when you look at an English translation, is you'll oftentimes see a sentence and then you'll get an ellipsis and then there's another sentence that picks up with something completely different. The fragmentary nature again comes back to haunt us that we have to fill in those spaces. And so even reading an English translation becomes difficult for a lot of people because they're asking themselves, where is this going? Where did that sentence or idea end? Why is this something new? Uh, I guess an even more emphasis on needing the spirit to fill in those gaps as well. Going back to some of the Mormon academics who've commented on the scrolls, can you give us some more specifics about what Hugh Nibley said about the scrolls? Yeah. So in the articles that uh, Hugh Nibley published in periodicals in the church, like the Improvement Era and the Instructor, 
Hugh Nibley makes mentions of how the Dead Sea Scrolls illuminate Restoration Scripture. For example, in the July 1963 instructor, Hugh Nibley answers basic questions like we're doing today about the discovery and the content of the scrolls, and then provides an additional eight points aimed at throwing light on the Book of Mormon. And so Hugh Nibley uses the scrolls as a means of being able to further illuminate what we're seeing in the Book of Mormon text and finding points in which the Dead Sea Scrolls are helping us better understand what's happening in the Restoration text that we have. You mentioned that Elder Peterson and Elder Oaks had referenced the Dead Sea Scrolls, one in a corrective nature, another to say, hey, this could be a source of scripture. But I think Elder Maxwell also talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are some of the things he said? Yeah, so in the 1986 April General Conference, Neil A. Maxwell actually references the Dead Sea Scrolls and indicates that they are an example of a continuing restoration of all things. And so Elder Maxwell's perspective on the scrolls was not necessarily one of bringing things new to light that we weren't necessarily aware of, but that the Dead Sea Scrolls were restoring our understanding of ancient Judaism. And that in the latter days, the Dead Sea Scrolls formed a corpus of texts that would help us to better understand what was happening in Judaism. And so he viewed the texts maybe more contemporaneously uh, within their historical context than the others did, uh, saying that this is meant to give us a better understanding of the past, not necessarily a better understanding of the present or the future. As a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar and a believing LDS, what's your takeaway from these interpretations? One of my favorite things to take away from my background with the scrolls is that this is exciting from the standpoint that it gives us more texts that we can study to better understand the scripture that we already have. Uh, I think going back to some of those comments about Neil A. Maxwell helped to really get to the heart of what's happening. We want to see the scrolls and say, oh, what's new? What's helping us to be able to see something that somebody else may not see? But In reality, I feel like the scrolls give us a better understanding of the Old Testament. They give us a better understanding of what Judaism looked like prior to and during the life of the Savior. And because as a people, we tend to shy away from the Old Testament, it makes me excited to say, oh, how can we look at this and maybe excite Latter-day Saints to want to study the Old Testament more? When you read a text such as the community rule, and you read about all these ordinances and rituals that they would participate in, they help us better understand what Judaism looked like. And it wasn't just sacrifices of animals, and it wasn't just these really strict law codes to follow, but that there was a purpose behind what they were doing. And really giving us an understanding of what the Book of Mormon clarifies is that all things in the law of Moses pointed towards the new law that would come through Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's been 70 years. It took a while because they're very fragile (laughs) to get them in a state so they could be digitized and studied by scholars. But Dead Sea Scrolls are still an area ripe for study. Tell us about some of the mysteries that they contain. Yeah, so the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a number of things that cause scholars to say, wait a second, what's going on here? One of those things is that 
we have clear evidence that there's friction within Judaism in the Second Temple period. Some groups like each other, some groups don't. And we see a little bit of this with the New Testament, but in texts like 4QMMT, uh, which is a text that was found in K4, uh, as a letter from the Essene community who is producing the text back to Jerusalem, telling the high priest in Jerusalem everything that he is doing wrong with the temple. And so we start to get insights into how people believed and practiced and viewed sacred space like the temple. Other mysteries that we start to solve is what did scripture look like in the second temple period? Was it just the Old Testament that we have, or did it consist of other books like the book of Jubilees, for example, or the text of the Enochic literature that we have? And so one of the mysteries that starts to unfold as you read the Dead Sea Scrolls is that these people didn't have a closed canon of scripture. They didn't believe that scripture had finished with the Nevi'im or the prophets uh, as later Jewish tradition would ascribe, but they believed that it was a greater expanse of canon. Now, to what extent that, what that looked like, if everything was viewed on the same plateau or if there was a demarcation of which was better than others, uh, is still very much up for debate. But we get into this mystery of what was scripture? Uh, what did that look like? We also get into mysteries of how did the Jewish people live? What was their day-to-day activities? What would it have looked like in the second temple period with a temple built in Jerusalem for people who lived away from the temple? How did they live their lives? Politically, what role did religion play within the politics of the day? And who was in charge, who had power, and who didn't? And so A lot of these are historical mysteries that prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we just had texts like Josephus that were very much pointed to a a specific direction and a specific interpretation. You've written several papers on this topic, and I picked one to talk about today. It talks about the concept of the divine name and how it is used in the Jewish religion. Could you just take a little bit of time and explain what divine name means? Because it's not really something we hear about in our LDS church curriculum. Yeah. So in ancient Judaism, there was a belief that one was not supposed to speak the proper name of God. Now, in English contexts and with English groups, oftentimes this would be either pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. And the general idea was is that only the high priest could say that name at one time. Now, depending on which scriptural text you're looking at, and with that reference I'm meaning whether you're looking at the Old Testament in Hebrew or if you're looking at the Old Testament in Greek, there is a little bit of a debate as to what the actual prohibition is. In Deuteronomy, we receive a direct prohibition that one was not supposed to speak or say the divine name. Different groups took different interpretations of how this would look like. Now, for the Dead Sea Scrolls community, we seem to find that some texts, when they quote scripture that has the divine name in it, will purposefully avoid it. They'll draw dots or they'll write the name in Paleo-Hebrew, which is an older handwriting than the traditional block or script Hebrew. They would leave it blank, or a number of other different functions to make sure that nobody would actually say that divine name. 
in the Qumran community, if they said the name, they were kicked out of the community permanently with no chance of being able to come back. Whether they said it by mistake or in reading or in vain, in any way, if they said the divine name, they were no longer allowed to be in the community. And so we have texts that imitate that prohibition. Now, it's up for debate of to what extent that actually was practiced in antiquity. At least for the group that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, there seems to be a belief that you're supposed to avoid using that name in a similar manner that as Latter-day Saints, we call the Melchizedek Priest of the Melchizedek Priesthood rather than its proper name that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants as a means of avoiding too much of a repetition of the name of the Lord. As a biblical scholar, do you know where this hesitancy to use the divine name originated? Was it with the Decalogue? We know partly the law of Moses was there to help the Jews know they didn't need to go further than certain points. And you're telling here the Essenes took this very seriously, probably even more than the Mosaic law. Yeah. So in the text of Deuteronomy, we get this explicit statement that one is not supposed to say the divine name. But it's interesting, the Hebrew text there is one is supposed to avoid it. And it doesn't seem to have the strict characteristics that we see later, like in the Essene community. However, when we read the Greek translation of the text, it seems that the translators, when they translated the text from Hebrew to Greek, made the conscious decision to intensify that prohibition. And so it appears that while early on the use of the name may have been more allowed, we see this in some material aspects as well. There's some jars that we found at Kintila Darjud that have the divine name on them, and it doesn't seem to have been a problem with that community to use it. But those dating to the pre-exilic period or prior to the exile in 586-87 BCE um, seem to differ from what we see after the exile and then leading up to the translation of the Greek text in the 3rd century BCE. And so it seems that as we get closer and closer to that meridian of time, we have a greater propensity of being able to avoid the divine name. Whereas earlier on, it seemed that there was just this idea of don't use the name of the Lord in vain, uh, very similar to the Decalogue. And so it seems that as time progresses, there's this fence that gets built around the law in saying we don't want anybody to use the name in vain. So let's go even further and say you can't even use the name. And then that ends up getting picked up even in rabbinic and modern Jewish traditions where a number of people will not pronounce the name. Uh, and some of that also comes with time. Some groups will state that the divine name is not supposed to be said because we don't know the proper pronunciation. And similar to people today not being too happy about their name being pronounced the wrong way, uh, the Israelites had an even heightened ideology that you didn't want to mispronounce the name of God. Uh, and so over time, these different things come together to an ultimate prohibition of saying it in any way. I don't know if you remember, but as I was reading this paper, I sent you an email and said, why do you keep using divine name? The primary reason I asked that question is I know you've studied at Hebrew universities 
and with Jewish scholars. And I just wanted to know, is it something that I should avoid? <laughs> because um, you had avoided it in your paper. So how do you, how, should we avoid using Yahweh? Or is it okay when we're talking in a scholastic forum? What are your feelings as a biblical scholar? I, I think when we do this, the main thing to keep in mind is to keep in, in mind who our audience is. As a scholar, I tend to use the term divine name for the purpose of respecting those who may be uncomfortable with the actual pronunciation or a pronunciation of that name. And so if we keep in mind who our audience is, we're able to understand maybe that, okay, I want to be mindful of my brothers and sisters of another faith so that they recognize that I'm understanding of what beliefs they have in the same way that we want a lot of people to be understanding of our own beliefs as Latter-day Saints. And so this is one where I feel that in the same sense, like I said, with the name of the priesthood, we have precedent in Latter-day Saint revelation of not wanting to use sacred names too frequently. I feel that if we know what our audience is, there is times and proper places where we should use the name and we can talk about it and converse in it very openly. Uh, but we just want to make sure we know who our audience is. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the first 70 years, a lot of that is finding the scrolls. The Bedouins were a little bit better than the archaeologists at doing that. Uh, they get collected. They're preserved. You start scholarship. What does year 71, year 72, year 73, do you have any idea what is the upcoming scholarship for the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I hope I have an idea because I want to keep doing this for the, the near future. But uh, as you mentioned, the early years were about finding and publishing. And we just recently, in scholarly terms, uh, have just finished publishing all of the scrolls that we have. And so now we're to a point where we have the corpus of the scrolls. Now the idea is, is what do we do with it? How do we fill in those spaces? How do we take different lenses and methods of approach to study these texts, to get a better understanding of what's out there? And so I think in the near future, what we're going to see is we're going to see scholarship that aims at saying, okay, we're not going to publish what this text says, but now we're going to publish what this text means. And in the same way that scholars have approached the Bible for 2,000 years, we're going to say, how do we get this within its context? And how do we understand what this is trying to say about the people who wrote and produced these texts? And hopefully, you know, when we celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the finding of the scrolls uh, in 2047, we'll be able to say, okay, now we've got an idea of who the Skrulls community is and what their thoughts were and how they practiced Judaism. Hopefully in that time, we'll find another cache of texts that will start the process over as well, but that like the Dead Sea Scrolls have done for the Bible, we'll be able to do for the Dead Sea Scrolls and maybe fill in some of those gaps better than we can by just hypothesizing. Thanks, Josh, for visiting with us. This has been really fun and given us a really good, solid foundation for our study of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes.
LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.